for it is done. Ah. Well, welcome to this week's episode of Done from First John. And uh, I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited in part because uh, just getting life together enough to be able to stand up here and say something to you is an accomplishment. Now, I don't need a round of applause or anything, but I do want to give you a status update because that's the title of this sermon, and I mean it in a different sense, but here's the status update. My wonderful wife, Karen, is here. Yay! All right, no applause is required again. Uh, she no longer has a cast on. She has a brace. She is no longer in only the bed or the chair. She is walking uh, with a walker and a spotter, but you start somewhere. And uh, she's still working too much and uh, you know having exciting times, but she's doing better. So we are grateful for medical help. We are grateful for uh, the fact that she used to have some muscles in her legs and, you know, so they can come back. We're also thankful for a God who has seen her through some ridiculously unpleasant times. And I know she's not the only person in the room who feels that way because I'm looking out at you going, heavens, we all have seen a lot. And the status update that John is going to give us as we go into today's passage is one that's one of hope, that's one of goodness, that's one of, hey, remember this. And so that's where I want to go. Let me start by praying. Lord God, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for Emma's willingness to do it. Would you make us people who hear what you're saying? And would you help us to receive what you've said and see how it works into where we are in our lives right now? In Christ's name, amen. So one of the things that happens in this passage and in this letter is that John writes. It, it's a repeated thing that happens. John writes. And we'll be going through the part in this passage where that happens, but I wanted to do some calling back here. Back earlier in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. So, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. I'm writing you an old command, but I'm also writing you a new command, John says. He's writing. 1 John 1.4, we write this to make our joy complete. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John is calling out his writing. If you think about this, of course he's writing. This is how the recipients of the letter, including us, get it, right? Is John's writing. Why does he keep saying that? No ideas. Fair enough. Let's keep going. The other thing I want you to notice about John's writing is that he's using tenses. We're going to go grammar for just a second here. Don't let your eyes glaze over or your hope dissipate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 says, I am writing to you. What tense is that? 
Present, well done. Dear children, John is writing. Hey, I'm writing this. Fantastic. Because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Okay, John is writing. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. What kind of tense is that? It's something that happened in the past. And in the Greek, it's a perfective tense, which means something happened in the past and its effect continues into the present and hopefully beyond. So Karen and I, 23 years plus ago, were married. And so she's got somebody to walk with her to the bathroom. It's what you always dreamed of, wasn't it, dear? <laughs> if so, you were further sighted than I was, is all I can say. Okay, so one is happening. John is writing. The other one has happened. He is writing, but they have been forgiven. No blemish remains because of the authority of Christ. That's what his name is talking about. So I just wanted to before we do anything else, say, look, John is still writing to us today. He was writing, he's still writing to us. If you are in Christ, Church of the Valley, your sins are forgiven. Don't take this for granted. Oh, my sins are forgiven, hoop-de-doo. But also, don't fret about it. Oh, I sinned again, I'm doomed. Oh, my motives were wrong again. I'm a terrible person. If you are found in Christ, your sins have been forgiven and that effect continues on into the present and it will continue on into the future. Let's make it all the way to verse 13. And I'm going to read it and then, and then I want to say a couple of things. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers. I am writing. He's still talking about the fact that he's writing because you know him who is from the beginning. Anybody know who that is? <laughs> Let's try that again. Anybody know who that is? Who is him? Okay, now we're talking. That might show up on the live stream. Okay. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Anybody feel like you overcame the evil one this morning? Don't, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Here's the problem. Is you hear that and you go, he spoke to children in the first verse, to fathers in the second verse, to young men in the third verse. I don't really categorize myself in any of those spots. Our modern mind kind of shuts down. So we need to talk a little bit about what he's talking about. Before we do that, let me just divert for a moment here. My grandmother, my father's mother, lived to a very old age, but her mind didn't. And so for a long time, what you got out of my grandmother was a little bit like spinning a dial and you know some response comes up and she had stories. She also had sayings, and one of the sayings that I heard the most was, a freshman knows not and knows not that they know not. Have you heard this? Anyone heard this before? Okay, a sophomore knows not and knows that they know not. A junior knows and knows not that they know. And a senior 
knows and knows that they know. So as long as one of her you know, four grandchildren was in some level of high school or college, grandma had an excuse every 10 minutes to trot that one out. Now, when you're a freshman, do you like grandma trotting that out every 10 minutes? Of course you don't. I know not, no, not that I know not. Wait, if I argue with, ah. And here's the problem with the way we come into reading passages like this one is we see it and we go, you're labeling me. I've got to fit into one of these. And these categories are not crisp and they're not gender-based and they're not age-based. They have to do with something else primarily. So if, if your brain started to go, I need to think about something else because I'm none of these, Take it easy, let's talk about it. He's already referred in this letter to his readers as little children at the beginning of chapter two. So we know that he isn't talking to what we would call children's ministry. Fair enough? Little children are all of us who listen receptively to what John is writing. I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing to little children and they're gonna pay attention. Great. Fathers in John's context would not simply refer to older men who have had children, but to those who are mature and experienced in the faith. Those who have had experience with Christ over some time. And young men, culturally, would have been the group who do all the heavy lifting, literally and figuratively. But in this context, what John is saying is, you're all children, so we're out, of a, we're out of an age range here. Fathers are still children, yes? Young men are still children. But there are ways in your spiritual development that you are going to be more energetic as a young man, but you might point it in the wrong direction more than somebody who's more mature in the faith. And that can happen with somebody who's 80 or somebody who's 16. It just depends on where you are. So, some commentators feel that John is talking to literal children, to literal young men, to literal fathers, and, you know, maybe there's a, a small element there, but if that were so, the order even is wrong. You don't start with children in the ancient Near East. The children come along last. You start with the fathers because they're the ones with responsibility and respect. They get the place of honor. You might move on to the young men, you know, first the fathers, a long time nothing, and then the young men. And then the children, maybe they're worth mentioning, but they'll grow up and then we can probably mention them later. So if it's more to do with maturity than faith, the point isn't to identify with those groups in terms that we would normally associate with them. So Karen is not a father, but if you ask me about her spiritual growth and development, her maturity, I will tell you that that woman has relied on God in circumstances that would have turned me cold at the same state of my development. She's got experiences of the, the love and intervention of God that have grown her faith and made her wise in ways that I am not always. So 
The point then isn't to divide these out by age, to divide these out by gender, to divide these out even by roles in the church. The thing that's striking is how unified they are in Christ. John is talking to everybody in the church at some, at some level. Now, here's something. If you take the Bible in the pew, or it should be in your app, <clears throat> or one that you brought, and you look at verses 12, 13, and 14, they look different than the rest of the, the passage. Can anybody describe how they look different? How are they laid out differently? They're psalmy, poetic. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, those are both good words because you're like, are these lyrics? Are they, is, is it a poem? It's not very poetic, really, in English. Okay, we... So I'm going to do another something. I talked grammar already, and now we're going to go into another language. It's going to be okay. Let's look at a piece of parchment. I think we've got a picture. So in your head, you may have the idea that we've got the letter that John wrote, and it's got his autograph at the bottom, and you know you could buy it on auction for a couple million dollars, and we, we don't. Because back in the day, mostly what was written on was parchment, and it was often parchment that had been scraped clean of something else and reused. Oddly, 2,000-year-old parchment doesn't survive super well. So we tend to have few documents from, you know, soon after John would have written this. We've got a lot of fragments from not long after John wrote this. And then we've got some more before or later. So more come later. They were better preserved. They had better paper technology. How's that for a thing that we don't think about anymore? So why do I have a picture of the parchment up there? What's missing from this page? See any punctuation? See any spaces between what might be words? If that's what a biblical manuscript looks like in its you know, close to original form, how did they get from there to versified? Any idea? Let me tell you. Okay, let's next look at the words of those in Greek, not of this parchment. This one's one I could find that was a little higher resolution than some. And I know it's all Greek to us, it's, it's fine. But notice, can you see that there are some similarities in what's on the screen now, if you can see that far? There are some similarities. So uh, one, the first word in verse 12 is grapho. It means I write. Hey, two English words required, only one Greek word. Cool. Let's go to the next slide. So the first word of the first three verses is grapho. And you go, wait, that one in 12 looks weird. That's a capital G. Gamma, really, but you, you know. So the three green things are all I write. Now, the second word in each of these phrases is humim, to you. 
When you stack it up like this, it's starting to look more like something that fits together differently than we normally write, yes? But wait, there's more. Go to the next slide. You'll notice that those other three, oh, we've turned those green, why? That's a different word. No, actually it's not. That was, you remember, uh, uh, it's, it's a past tense. I wrote, I have written. Now, not all the translations put that tense change in, and there's some debate. Does John suddenly say, okay, well, I, I had been writing, I, I am writing, I am writing, I have written, because he knew it was getting redundant. No, I don't think that's what's going on here. What's going on here is John is saying, the messaging has been consistent. What I have said before, not just in this letter, but in his gospel, is consistent with what's going to come afterwards. In the past, in the present, John is telling us what's what. And to me, it's exciting to think that John said, I want to phrase this in a way that my people can remember. This is going to help you remember if the first two words of every phrase is the same thing, right? This is almost what we learned in school. How do I memorize something? Well, find me, find me a pattern. Help me out. But let's keep going. There's this other whole, there's a, another word that there's got some variation, but then what, 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 what? Hati, which means because or for or that. It's a connecting word. And you go, okay, so now I don't have to remember anything but the word that comes before that and the word that comes after that. But man, those words are kind of big. But wait a minute. Two of them are the same. Oh wait, two others are the same. Fathers and young men. So suddenly, most of this looks like it's pretty, pretty redundant almost, other than those two, two words. But wait a minute, there's more. Two different words, they're synonyms for child. Both of those words are an affectionate form of a word for child. So that's why it's translated dear children, because they're dear children. Why did he change the word? Why is everything the same thing and he changed the word? Speculative to say, so we're not going to bother with that. Here's the point. The people who made the layout in your Bibles saw something going on here and said, this is how the early church is solidifying its sense of what's important. And it's a way of remembering, and it's really, really important to John that they retain these things. And so he not only does it with using the same words, it's also repetitious. It's a little crazy how repetitious it is. Let's keep going. Okay, so he wants his readers to remember these core truths. These are the essentials that John is pulling out of, of uh, life in the church for people of all spiritual developments. What is he emphasizing? In Christ, you are forgiven. Not you were forgiven and now you're messed up because he took care of it then and not now. No, you are forgiven. In Christ, you come to know the Father more and more fully. What characterizes these responsible members of the congregation? 
The same thing that got them in. They know the Father. So why didn't they graduate to a deeper knowledge? Because the deepest knowledge is knowing the Father. And what John is writing against has to do with secret knowledge coming from someplace else. And so he's hammering on this because he says, remember, there is nothing beyond this message, this lesson, relationship with God, which is unimaginable that you could have it, has been bought with forgiveness through Christ, and it is now possible for you to mature in growth in that. And in Christ, you can face adversity and be provided with resources because of Christ's victory over sin and death, and not to mention the father of lies. So this is all good news. This is why John wants them to remember it. He doesn't write the whole letter like this. He writes these nuggets, these summaries, saying, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Don't make me keep saying it for another 12 chapters because I'm willing to do it because it's essential that you remember it. The children know the Father, John, uh, 1 John 2.14. Let's get back to the text. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Wait, the fathers know Jesus. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. How is that different? Who did we say was... From the beginning? Okay. So the children know, know the Father, and the fathers know the Son. Isn't that interesting? There's a relational implication to what John is teaching here, which is every person needs to be in a relationship with the Father, and every person needs to be in a relationship with the Son, and the Father-Son nature of our God, not to leave out the Holy Spirit, but that, this is who John is talking about so far, is an essential part of understanding that our family is complete because we've got the perfect father and we've got the perfect older brother. Did John say that? Not in so many words, but he's communicating that clearly anyway. The young men are empowered. What do they hear? I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Nobody looks at my flex and goes, oh yeah, mm, strong. Maybe three-year-olds, some, some gullible three-year-olds. And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Is John talking about, you know, how, how uh, bulked up they are? And that protein shake is really paying off. No. They are empowered by God's living word. They are made strong and they have overcome. So already? They've already overcome the evil one? I mean, there are false teachers presenting them with stuff. Apparently they haven't overcome the evil one. Or maybe it means something else. Maybe it does. All right. Before I get to that, let's just say children need the father. Fathers need the son. Young men need strength. And these things all come from the God who supplies it. And again, John isn't talking about little kids, old dudes, young dudes. He's talking about all of us. He's talking about women and men who are mature in the faith and maybe have responsibility in the gathering. 
They're talking about those who are maturing in the faith and in serving others, which everybody ought to do, right? That you don't graduate out of that. What's striking here is that the needs are different, but each gets what they need through God. Okay. God is the father who's better than any we've experienced. He's the son. We've got the son who points to the father and then the originator of the spirit-breathed word that's empowering these young men. There's there's a wholeness in the Godhead that's on display in this passage. All right. It's not as catchy in English, but uh, John says, don't overlook what we've been testifying to ever since the beginning. God sent his son, and relationship with the son changes, oh, one or two things. No, everything. It's the status update. It's the only one that matters. So my question for you is, where are you looking for care, for relationship, for resources, instead of him who was from the beginning? I've got too many answers to that question. The new shiny really looks appealing to me. A new situation sounds more promising than the intractable relationship somewhere else. And if I'm left to my own devices, I might chase after that. But here's what God does instead. He gives us people like John who say, hey, reminder, What you're looking for, it's actually only ever found in Christ. John doesn't seem worried about the young men and the fathers. The maturing process depends on their deepening relationship with God, which will deepen their dependence on God. And that's how all of this is going to work together in the community. Do you know that Christ dependence? Can you testify to how God has seen you through, I don't know, 2023. Am I the only one who's had a ridiculous 2023? Again, I've talked to a few of you. You've had ridiculous 2023s too, some of you. And having the ability to say, this has been hard and God has sustained me through it is a real blessing. It's an even greater blessing to be able to say, God gave me strength because I remembered his word, but God also gave me strength because his people remembered me and remembered me to the Father. So there are ways in which praying for one another, for helping one another, serving like a young man would, counseling like a a father or mother would, just being excited by like a little kid would, These are essential elements. And as you and I mature into a new creation that God has made, we experience character that is more like Christ. And if you say, Mike, I know you well enough to know that Christ isn't all that's on display, I'd say, yep. But you should have known me 20 years ago. Because we change, don't we? One of the things I still, people who haven't seen me in a long time are like, I never thought you and Tim would, would 
you know, partner in ministry. I just never saw that coming. Because when I met Pastor Tim, he wasn't Pastor Tim. He was this young guy, and uh, he wanted to have lunch pretty regularly, and uh, I couldn't figure out why. And uh, it turned out that we had a few touch points, including, you know, when he was like eight, the media that he was in taking is what I was taking in when I was like 20. Uh, <clears throat> and so, you know, like that, that, that worked. But also he was excited about talking about Jesus. And I was around a lot of people who weren't excited about talking about Jesus. They might have been excited about talking about talking about Jesus. Anyway, but the point there is, if I was the mature one in that situation, I said if, what Tim brought was kind of that brash young man energy. And was he a young man? Debatably. But what we both were were people in process, people who had been forgiven of our sins and that forgiveness continued on into the present and has to this day and people who were willing to learn from one another what it means to follow Christ in a way that matters. And I've got to tell you, these relational words that John uses, they're really true. When I think about the things that I have learned from people who were more mature in the faith, whether they were older or younger than I am, and when I think about the things that, um, by pure dumb luck, as far as I could tell, I was able to encourage somebody, and that turned out to be God's maneuvering of me in their life, there's something about remembering what God has done. And I don't write, I speak it. And what I'd like to encourage you to do is remember where this is true for you. How has God addressed a maturing need in your life, a reminder of your forgiveness, more detail about what it's like to be under a father who's perfect, more experiential understanding of what it's like to follow the path of Jesus Christ. So we've hit verse 14. We're going to need to accelerate, and so we shall. There's a word in verse 14 that when, when I first received this passage, overcome, it says, I was a little overcome. Because the way I grew up, there were a couple of ways to take this. Uh, overcoming was a way of being really spiritual. I overcame that traffic this morning. Did you? You made it to work, you know, and you want a cookie? Um, and I dismissed that. Maybe some of the people who told me that were, were really overcoming something in, in their commute. But I think what happens is it either gets really spiritualized for whatever's happening that day, or it becomes a, an area where shame can be experienced. And what I mean by that is uh, I'm, I'm not overcoming enough. And suddenly, we're, what is the standard? How overcoming do we need to be in order to be in Christ? Is my salvation dependent on my overcoming? Wait, if I'm not overcoming, whatever that means, does that mean I'm, I'm not right with God? 
okay, we can spin ourselves into a hole there. But then it occurred to me there's a third way to take this badly. And this is my least favorite way. Overcoming in the sense of a triumphal view of life, what life in Christ is going to be like, and it's pretty militaristic. So uh, I'm going to beat down Satan's door today is kind of the, the mode. And there's a historical way that people expressed Christian life that ties into this. So let me give you an example. There's a hymn. It's in our hymn books. We don't really sing it. We don't sing a lot of hymns here called Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And the, the you know, lyrics are not very large here. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Soldiers of the cross. Anybody think of themselves as that this week? Yeah, me neither. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. Doesn't that sound like it's my responsibility to prevent the, the royal banner from suffering loss? Is that my responsibility? No. Nah. God's going to protect his glory. I want to point to his glory. Now, is this a bad hymn? No and yes. The no, because there, there's, there's value here. Um, I love that third verse. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. That is a lyric I can get behind. And you know why I know that we can't trust our own? Because I'm told that Civil War uh, bands on both sides saying this heading into battle. So if the Union Army and the Confederate Army were both certain that they were representing God, did this song help either side? I'm going to argue that it didn't. And so when we think about overcoming, if, if the thought is, I'm going to see victory in the physical realm from day to day, and anybody who stands in my way, God is going to bring them low, John hasn't said anything like that. Who, who of the young men overcome? The evil one. Who is the evil one? Well, obviously, it's the politician I don't like. Obviously, it's the planning uh, people at the city because I, I, now I've got to redesign my addition. Obviously, it's the person in that Tesla. <laughs> wow. The most resounding response this morning. His army shall he lead, is what the song actually says. Stand in his strength alone. The song's trying to point us to something, but there's a danger here, and the danger is the things we want that are outside of God's plan, we're going to sing this song as though God is about getting us what we want outside and John's going to get to that in a moment. One, one more song. Onward Christian Soldiers. Do people know this song? Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. The Crusades really made a beneficial impact on the history for the cause of Christ, right? 
So there's a way to take the militaristic language that's in the Bible and to miss that in Christ, we've got a different approach and we've got different aims. And what we find is that even in what we've read so far, that some people want to see I win is the takeaway from what John has written, and he's not going to allow that. So John's going to return to overcoming in this letter. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, it's, it's a significant theme. But for now, let's just remember that our attention is supposed to be on our own struggles to be free of entanglement with the world. What John means by that is the last part, hallelujah, of our text today. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Okay, <laughs> love the world or anything in the world. It sounds kind of like an eco-oriented thing, and that's, that's not what John's talking about. Um, He's about to talk about what's in the world. He's going to define it. But for the moment, notice that he set it up so that loving the world means not loving the Father. Which means I have a choice as to what motivates me. Not just overall, but on an individualized basis. Do I want somebody to get justice or do I want to agree with the Father that forgiven is forgiven? Do I want what my body wants, or do I agree with God that my identity is in Christ alone, and that's where I'm going to live? He's set up this, this dichotomy. I can't have it both ways. And none of what John has said already about relationship and resources available to us in Christ is meant to coexist with another affection. We've got one affection, and that's for God and God alone. And it's a hard saying because the world is relentless in pursuing it. I, uh, I just discovered um, that the Wall Street Journal has a, a periodic section called Mansion. You know, it's not the housing section, it's Mansion. Because if you're subscribing to the Wall Street Journal, obviously you're not merely looking for housing. And if you look at the houses around here and, you know, little cottage torn down, palatial estate put up, you say, what is my culture telling me to value? New, bigger, more luxurious. <laughs> None of these are elements that John is writing about. We're told that victory over the tempter is ours in Christ, but just be aware, we still experience temptation. I like nice things too. Verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So this is what he means by anything in the world. He uses sensual language, lust of the flesh. What my body thinks it wants. More Twinkies. No, no. VBS required me to eat Twinkies and uh, it, no, not Twinkies. But there are many other foods that I will eat too much of and happily. Cravings is kind of what this phrase is talking about. Sexual desire and wanting what other people have. Lust of the eyes. They're not brightened with excitement over something. They're darkened with selfish perception of what's out there and what's available. Think of what Jesus says. Uh, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. That's the kind of eye lust that John is talking about. He's saying there's somebody who looks at the world and says, what's for me? What can I get here? And everybody and everything is just a resource to them. And that's why we need Christ to supply our resources. And the last one's kind of hard to understand in the language. I'm not good enough with Greek to understand it. But I found a list of some ways translators try to convey the meaning of the third description uh, of what's in the world, okay? The pride of life is what, what our text says. The boastful pride of life, okay? All the glamour of its life, okay? Now we're getting into the fashion section, maybe, or the mansion section. The life of empty show, yikes. Pride in possessions. It's almost like John had Insta in mind, almost. Um, and it's hard to look at the catalogs that come to my house and not say, gosh, somebody knows how to tap into that. That there's something that makes me want to have the shiny because it's going to make me feel better about me. Okay, so let's reread verse 16. We'll close out the passage with verse 17. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So we're preoccupied in our culture with certain things, and John says um, they're not going to last. Just note, note here. So I don't like his response. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. I don't, I don't like that. I would like something I could do, please. Whoever copies my letter out a hundred times, I could do that. But apparently, we're called to a higher standard. So how do we do the will of God? We're not trying to impress God with our actions. We're not trying to impress God with our works. Um, it's more, that's the perspective that he's fighting against. So let's do what John wanted us to do. And we go back and we remember what happens in his little song or poem. Remember that you've been forgiven. I write this to you, he said in, in chapter 2, verse 1, so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, I write to you so you won't sin, but if, but if you do, he's covered the bases because that's how Jesus works. So that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Don't sin, but when you do, remember Jesus. There are lots of other places you can go to feel better about it. They won't work, not for long. Go to Jesus. So remember that forgiveness lasts forever. Remember that God is knowable. Isn't that crazy? The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe is knowable, but you and I don't know him well enough yet, and he keeps inviting us further into his house not just the, the formal living room, not just the family room, but we, we, we got, we're in the kitchen, we're making stuff with God here. What is his character like? Now that I know him deep, more deeply, what is he like? Some of the questions that I had about, about how could he be like this and like this begin to become answered. What has he done in the past? How about my past? 
What about my present? How is he at work now? How is he at work in your present? Remember that Jesus has overcome the world. We don't fix our eyes and our bodies <laughs> and our pride by doing better. I mean, Karen, do better so that your, your bones heal. I, and yet we tell ourselves that sometimes. We say, oh, this wouldn't happen to me if I were just better at this, whatever that is. We fix our eyes on Jesus instead. Our status update is being found in Christ. Okay, let's, let's take this to the end here. And uh, Dan and Melanie, if you don't mind coming up, I want to go back to John's gospel for, for a few short verses. And Jesus is responding to his disciples who multiple times have had the discovery that Jesus is amazing and it's like he's, he's the promised one of God. And it, John keeps writing about that. And they saw this and believed. They saw this and believed. Like, what, are they stupid? No, they're like me. <laughs> they take 15 times to learn how to do something, to learn how to understand who Jesus is. John 16, 31. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for my father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John isn't suddenly teaching that young men have to take over the world. John is saying, those of you who are growing in your faith, Christ has won. That victory is sure. And that's the glory that you get to live in, not your own glory. And here's, here's the thing. As a general rule, you don't get jazzed by your spouse thinking or talking about someone else. Oh, isn't that person on TV so cute? On and on. Karen doesn't do this, so I've had to observe other people doing it. You don't reliably get a warm and fuzzy about where you live by looking at real estate ads, right? My house doesn't look staged, maybe yours does. You don't crush the job you have by going out and applying for more jobs. If you're trying to succeed where you are, getting those distractions and recognizing them as distractions is an important thing. Jesus wasn't alone. He didn't intend us to be alone. He set us up as a community to remember and to be powered by Christ's power. Jesus is the overcomer whose work made it possible for us to know God and to live out his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. God, in the middle of uh, slides with colored Greek words and the mansion section of the Wall Street Journal, you are standing and saying, there are people in this room who know me, but they need to know me more. And God, I, I pray that you would help us to remember what John 
has written. And that we would see where distractions from outside what we need to be jazzed about are keeping us from knowing you in, in the glory that you have, in, in the love that you have, in the way in which you're not an idea, you're a person with whom we can have fellowship, in the way in which we can depend upon you to solidify relationships between us because you cover over all the things that need forgiving and you continue to grow us. So I ask that you would help us to remember not just what John has written, but what you have done in our lives to this point and where we see that you need to move. I pray that we would be fervently asking you and that we would be willing to tell somebody else where we are in our journey so that they could encourage us, so that they could spur us on to this amazing thing of doing your will, which means loving you more. You're so good, God. Thank you for allowing us to pray to you by the authority of Jesus. Amen.